Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 109 for May the 20th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest this week is Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. Uh, we've got a pretty busy uh, agenda this week, so I don't know that there's necessarily time to talk about the weather. So I'm going to jump straight into the stories, uh, one of which was your story about gone in under a second. And, and now I've, th- I talk frequently about stolen mobile devices and forgotten mobile devices and destroyed mobile devices, all kinds of different things. I didn't really imagine that somebody could steal a laptop quite that fast. Uh, oh, you watched that little video clip, didn't you? Yeah, it was impressive. The guy, obviously, he's done it before. He doesn't even break stride. The guys are having a coffee on a London street. The guy's got his MacBook. The lid's closed. And the guy literally swoops on it like a pigeon swoops on a bread roll and uh, picks it up in one smooth movement. Probably could have been a rugby player in another life picking up a difficult rolling ball and uh, gone. So let's hope those guys had full disk encryption, eh? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was wondering about that because I, th- I think the laptop was actually open. So if he was logged in, full disk might not do any good, of course. No, it was the lid was closed. Oh, it was. Okay. That's one of the reasons why he was able to pick it up so quickly. Maybe he was looking for that. And the good news is my understanding on the latest versions of OS X, when you close the lid, if you have lock on sleep enabled, which you should, then FireWire and FireWire over Thunderbolt automatically get disabled. So this thing where you jam in a firewire plug and then you use the debugging techniques to break in and dump memory to get the crypto keys doesn't work. Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess for those people that are like, well, I never leave my stuff unattended, it's not going to happen to me, et cetera, et cetera, it's kind of a good lesson to learn. Because I, I kind of felt that way in that boat. I mean, I lecture people all the time about, well, couldn't you leave your iPhone at the pub by accident? But, you know, I think about it and I go, well, my, my Android is just about permanently glued to my body. It's, it never leaves my sight. And, you know, I'm less vulnerable to being compromised through some sort of theft because I'm so paranoid and I think about security all the time. It's the other people that need to watch out for themselves. The point is, unless you've actually got the thing strapped to your hand with a padlock and a chain, somebody can run off with it. And presumably, if it's a device that's sitting there and you're actively using, it's probably a good and current one. It's more worth stealing than something that's just lying around that someone's forgotten. So you can see why this thief would want it. I think another problem, Chester, is everybody assumes that a theft like we saw in that video that I wrote about, hey, it's just some opportunistic street thief. He's going to go to his fence. He wants 50 quid for the laptop. He'll be happy with that. Do you really think that fences in the modern world haven't worked out that data has value as well? Just like the opportunistic criminals we see online, they're going to try every opportunity to monetize. Yes, they're going to sell your laptop to someone, but they're also going to sell your data if they have any smarts. Speaking of thieves and stealing things, uh, we, we heard a story this week about $45 million vanishing from ATMs in a coordinated heist globally uh, that, that took advantage of uh, two different, uh, I guess, debit card systems that were compromised and were able to put unlimited bank limits and have people go up to machines and draw cash out. And in fact, there was a map that was published that was quite dramatic showing in Manhattan how the thieves had actually gone down Broadway hitting ATMs because they were all so close together and everything. Um, you know, how do people, you know, how do they recruit the hundreds, if not thousands of people they need to actually go retrieve all the cash, right? I mean, obviously the guys that broke into the bank database and set up the heist and all this kind of thing, weren't able and maybe not even willing to go up to the machines and draw the cash out. Uh, How does that work? 
Chester, that's, it, this is an interesting aspect of cybercrime that I think a lot of people forget about. Uh, you know, you imagine, well, the hacker or the cracker, he's in a back bedroom somewhere, he's doing his hacking, he never has to meet his victims, he never has to get on the street. There's an element of truth to that. Um, look at the Lulsec guys. Uh, they didn't have to get out on the street. But if you actually want to take digital version of money, credit card numbers, pins, bank card details, if you want to convert those into hard cash, then you have to go and front up to an ATM or you have to go into a shop with a cloned credit card and risk buying stuff that you can resell later. So you're right, these guys need to get money mules. They need them in significant quantities. And the answer is for at least some types of cybercrime, maybe not the, maybe not the withdrawing cash, since it's pretty obvious if you're using a fake card and drawing money from a, from a cash point that you are a crook. But certainly the people who are dealing with receiving funds and then remitting them overseas, the work from home scams that all of our listeners have probably seen in their email inboxes as spam any number of times. I can see why people would fall for those. Hey, I'm working from home. I'm doing a job. It's like an office administrator. I'm just getting what seem like orders. I'm getting them by email. I'm getting what looks like documentation. All I'm doing is depositing money and then remitting it in cash with Western Union or some system like that. And of course, what you need to remember is in very many cases, you are not really working from home as an office administrator for a legitimate company. You are a money launderer. You've been suckered, tricked into actually being part of a cybercrime operation. So if you're being invited online to deal with money, and in particular, if there's a cash part of it where you're taking your money and sending it overseas, my advice is don't do it. It's probably crooked. The finger's going to be pointing at you. The cash belongs to you that you remit overseas. You are not going to get it back. And when the cops come knocking, you are going to have a lot of explaining to do. Or in the case of one of these criminals, uh, the, the cops coming would have been the least of his problems, considering he was found shot dead in Dominican Republic. So there's, there's a lot of risk involved, uh, you know, aside from going to prison. They pulled out about $2.4 million, I think, in nine and a half hours. Uh, there were eight of them in the crew, because the eighth guy was still alive. Uh, if you do the arithmetic, they were doing a transaction with their bogus ATM cards approximately once every 90 seconds. It's probably why they chose to cash out in New York in this case and not uh, Dubuque, Iowa or something. You, know, you really want to have a high concentration of cash points to be able to draw the money out of. You mentioned Lulsec briefly in your, in your answer there. And of course, I just want to briefly mention, of course, that the, the four of them were sentenced in the UK this week. And I, I actually was a bit surprised at the moderation from the courts on the decision that was made there. I was, uh, I guess I was pleased, I would say, and that there were a lot of accusations from uh, Americans that I know that the, that the UK is not tough on cybercrime and, and the, like the US is and that these guys wouldn't serve any time. And there were a lot of people on the other side that were very concerned that, uh, that these guys might be made an example of beyond the actual uh, seriousness of the crimes they committed simply to deter others from, from uh, attacking the man the way that uh, Lulsec was so famous for doing uh, the previous two years. And, you know, most of them receive somewhere between 18 and 24 months. My understanding is in the UK, for crimes that don't involve violence and have a, a prison sentence that isn't over a certain length, if you plead guilty, generally the magistrates will give you half off. So that's why the guys do half the time. 
the court saying, look, you put your hand up, you pleaded guilty, you didn't make us labor through a trial, you obviously, we presume, are showing at least some recognition that what you did is a crime, we will allow you to serve a shorter sentence. So yeah, they they did get, what, between two and three years, the two main guys. They'll probably be quite relieved. I think, you know, you can imagine they could have got more, because they weren't just having fun, they were actually leaking people's private data, which is absolutely not on, not acceptable in any way. Certainly what they did was not, in my opinion, a laughing matter, like they thought. So I don't think they should be surprised that they're going to prison. I guess the smiles are a bit wiped off their faces now, but at least they didn't get 25 years or something absurd like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, I, I had done an interview in February with Parmi Olson, the author of We Are Anonymous, uh, a book kind of talking about the entire story of Lulsec from the beginning of how it all started with Aaron Barr during the Super Bowl, all the way up to the arrests of Topiary and Sabu and the rest of them. So uh, if you're interested in, in hearing Parmi's take on things, uh, even though it was back in February, we talked a bit about what we expected to happen in the sentencing and, and just thoughts in general on uh, her impressions of meeting these gentlemen. Uh, that podcast has been posted uh, right before this one in our feed. If you take a look at podcasts.sophos.com or in our RSS feed or on Naked Security, you can find that. Uh, this last week was Patch Tuesday. It was a reasonably large, depending how you want to measure it, uh, the, the, the number of fixes for different products and vulnerabilities patched, etc. Uh, the two primary ones that everybody was concerned about were a, what I guess we call an Internet Explorer roll-up, which was a whole bunch of vulnerabilities in IE, I think 10 or 11, uh, that were fixed, including um, the pwn-to-own vulnerability from, from uh, the CanSec West this year. There was another fix, which was the IE8 zero day that had uh, been used on the Department of Labor's website. The United States Department of Labor had a, a alleged watering hole attack. Uh, I say alleged in that the watering hole part of it is alleged, not the attack. But uh, Microsoft reacted really quickly, didn't they? Uh, that, that was a little, about like 10 days or something or less. These are not words that naturally come billowing out of my mouth, but well done, Microsoft. Uh, I think they, you know, given given the number of versions of Windows, the number of versions of Explorer, the n- number of people who have very strong feelings about, oh dear, you broke something, even though actually I was relying on a bug for my old software to work. They have to be really, really cautious about the speed with which they do fixes. And they got their fix it, the temporary in-memory only fix out, what, within a few days? And then they said, you know, we're really, really, really hoping we can actually get this rolled into the patch Tuesday, even though it's next week. And bingo, they did it. So let's hope that uh, that's a sign of how things will be in the future. Very rapid response to O-Days. The other thing I guess worth noting is um, people are calling this an IE8 zero day. And while it's not known to be exploitable in IE9, the code that can be exploited is in IE9. There's just not a known way of exploiting it. So this patch does not just patch IE8, it also patches IE9. And if you're an IE9 user, you're advised by Microsoft to make sure you apply this fix just in case someone were to determine a way to actually exploit that, that vulnerable code. As you said, it's a roll-up fix, so you want to apply it regardless, really, of your version of IE and of Windows. Uh, I haven't heard of any deleterious effects from using it. No, no, neither have I. Um, now, there are some bad effects if someone manages to lose your personal information. Um, Name.com seems to be the latest in a unfortunately ridiculously long list of organizations that keep dropping people's uh, PII and password hashes and other stuff. Now, 
it does sound like we're maybe learning a little bit, but it also sounds like maybe sometimes a bit of an excuse. I mean, we had the the livingsocial.com situation not that long ago. And of course, last year we had Zappos, we had LinkedIn, we had, you know, I, I don't really have time on the podcast to list them all. And the good news is like Living Social, it's like, oh, we lost hashes. So that's a good start. Instead of losing plain text passwords, which so many organizations were doing a few years ago. Oh, and we didn't lose credit card numbers because we actually took the precaution of putting them somewhere else and storing them encrypted. Yeah, so you're right. It's a good sign, the fact that it's not, hey, we lost everything, guys, we're really sorry. It's, well, we lost, uh, oh, your password hashes. But yeah, the, the, the idea of hashing, salting and hashing passwords, we've said this many times before, is as part of defense in depth in case something goes wrong. From time to time, and I'm not pointing a finger at name.com here, I think they were okay in the way they responded, but often you kind of read between the lines in the blurb that a company puts out when they do get an intrusion that goes, oh, we lost some hashes, so it's all okay. Well, no, it's not okay. You shouldn't have had the break-in in the first place. One more thing in the name.com and other stories that we've seen recently, Chester, that is, I guess, worrying me in a light-hearted way. We've got a new phrase that goes alongside advanced persistent threat, and that is abundance of caution which are the words that companies seem to be choosing and repeating these days for saying, hey, look, we, didn't, we don't actually know what quite went wrong, so we reset everybody's password anyway. And uh, whilst I would appreciate an abundance of caution rather than a broom was used to sweep stuff under the carpet, there's almost a contradiction in terms in saying an abundance of caution. The amount of caution you need is a reasonable and appropriate amount in other words, it's important not to make the cure worse than the disease. Good point, Paul. Uh, it's my understanding this week is the beginning of, uh, well, probably the entire thing of OSCERT, one of the big conferences in Queensland, Australia. And uh, I imagine the Southwest team is going to be down there. Were you trying to do a little bit of an Australian accent there, Chester? Just a little. Ah. A wee bit. Yes, OSCERT, uh, the, the, the full conference proper starts on tuesday evening 6 p.m queensland time which is utc plus 10 and at the same instant uh it's time for a sophos puzzle so those of you who are fans of the puzzles we produce um we've done one every year at ozcert and at various other conferences for the past few years uh there's going to be one this week and it takes the form visually of a rubik's cube so you can go to nakedsecurity.sophos.com and see what it looks like. And you don't have to be at the conference to have a go at solving it. There are prizes for remote solutions too. That's great. I mean, I know a lot of people enjoy the puzzles, and so uh, it, it's good to have one uh, kind of mid-year. And on that note, I'm going to wrap up Soft Security Chat Chat, episode 109. As always, for the latest security news, visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. For all of our podcasts, you can get them at podcasts.sophos.com uh, via RSS or on iTunes. And until next time, stay secure.